Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, we are especially thankful that you've joined us this morning as we sing praises to our God and as we study his word. And as you've joined us this morning, you're actually jumping into the midst of a series that we're going to be in all spring, right up until Easter, where we are studying the book of James. It's a letter written to early believers with instruction in how to live both fruitful and faithful lives. Because God knew that his people would suffer. He knew his people would face trial. He knew his people would face temptation. And so God has given us wisdom for how to navigate all those areas of life in the highs and in the lows. And that's why James wrote this letter, to help guide believers in how to live lives that are glorifying to the Lord, that are useful for his purposes in this world. And so this morning, we're gonna be looking in James chapter two, starting in verse 14. If you wanna turn there in your Bible, if you wanna go there on your phone, James chapter two, starting in verse 14. And what we're gonna see is really one big idea, one main point that James is going to make over and over and over again. And this is his point. He is trying to tell early believers that a working faith, that a life lived according to the will of God, saves us from a wasted life. That that is our purpose. Our purpose as children of the Lord Most High is to live out our faith. And that when we do so, we are spared judgment. We are spared the, the, the remorse and the regret of a life that is simply wasted, of a, of a faith that is simply useless. This is the point he's gonna make over and over and over again this morning. And this is something I saw play out in kind of a small way when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, when I was a child, when I was like early elementary school, my my family, we moved, we lived here in College Station, but we moved a little bit out of the city limits, and we moved on to four acres, a sprawling, you know, estate. And as we moved there, my parents decided, hey, what, what better way to take advantage of our four acres of land than by planting our very own fruit tree, right? So we decided, let's buy a pear tree, let's plant it, and then we can eat our own fruit. We're just living off the land at that point, right? We're basically off the grid. Like, if we're eating pears... What else do we really need? Like, ain't nobody gonna control us. We've got pears. And so we bought this pear tree. We were excited to plant it, start eating our own pears. But as we bought it, we hit our first hurdle, which is that the tree guy told us that it takes a pear tree about three years before it actually starts producing fruit. We're like, okay, no big deal. We got time, right? We got nothing but time, right? No, no wait, no great. And so we were like, we were ready. And so we planted the tree. We marked our calendars for three years in the future. We started our, you know, paper daisy chain countdown and started pulling off a paper every day. And we were like, one of these, in a thousand days, we will have our own bounty of pears. And so fast forward three years later, we go outside, we go to our magnificent, beautiful, mature pear tree, and we find no pears, no pears. So we're beginning to question all of our choices and our existence and just the meaning of life. And as we're raising these questions, we realize, hey, we have a resource. We can find answers. Because in those three years since we had planted the pear tree, we had gotten home internet. And so we decided, let's go online. Let's find out what's the deal with this pear tree. And so we go to, I'm assuming, peartrees.com. And what we found was this new piece of information that told us that pear trees must always be planted in multiples because one pear tree is not enough. It has to be cross-pollinated with another pear tree if it's ever gonna produce 
pairs, which is why, you know, the old saying goes, no pair, no pair, right? Remember that? Uh, so that's, that's what we took to heart. We were like, wow, yeah, no pair, no pair. Guess I should have listened to all those farmers back in the day. And so unfortunately, right, the bad news is we never got pears, ever, ever. That's the bad news, never got any pears. Good news, I don't even like pears, so whatever. <laughs> I don't need you, pear tree. But the tree was planted. The tree was cared for. The tree was in the right place, and yet that tree was unproductive. It was a pear tree. It was still a pear tree. It was. It was a pear tree, and yet it failed its purpose of producing fruit. And when we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, this is exactly what James is saying about the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. He says that you can be planted, you can be a person saved by the grace of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. You can be someone who has accepted the gospel, that good news, that even though we were dead and, and broken in our sin and in our failure, that God sent Jesus Christ out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us can live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin. And yet then he rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over the sin and the death and the, con the, the mistakes and the failure that otherwise held us captive. We can be adopted out of sin and death and we can be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are saved not by our work, but by the finished, completed work of God himself. That's where our assurance comes from. That's where our hope lies. Not in our ability, but in God's accomplishment. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And what James is going to be saying is that this is something that we can grab a hold of. This is something that we can, we can believe in. This is a faith that we can accept and adopt in our lives. He says, and yet there can be a time in our life where that faith is left to rot where that faith is left to wither. And that faith by itself, if it's simply a profession, is simply not worthful. It's not useful for the plan and purpose of God. That if we are not working out our faith, that our life is being wasted, that we're missing our purpose. And now what's important for us to recognize as we prepare to read this passage, that's admittedly, Tricky. Like this is, this is the hardest passage in all of James. It's one of the hardest passages to interpret in all the New Testament. But one of the things we need to remember right from the start is that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. When it comes to our relationship with the God of the universe, the God who loves us and has saved us, who's called us to himself, we need to recognize that we are accepted by the Lord fully through our faith. But God may not always approve of the lives that we live. I see this in my own family. My wife and I have three little kids, and I will always accept them and love them as my children. Nothing can negate or, or destroy that relationship that I have with them. They will always be my child. I will always be their father. I accept them as my children. And yet, they could make decisions or, or make choices. They could live a life that I don't always approve of. And when that happens, there will be a... a a tension in our relationship, maybe a fracturing. It's never eliminated, but that relationship becomes strained and difficult if they're living a life that's not, that's not one that I would approve of for them. In the same way, we are gonna be talking today about how God, we do not work for his acceptance, but we do work for his approval. That's why Paul tells believers that we should do all things with excellence as unto the Lord. Why? Because we want to live a life that God approves of. We want to live a life according to his will. 
that is deserving of his reward, that's deserving of Jesus's affirmation of good, of well done, good and faithful servant. That's the life we wanna live. And yet James is going to make the point that we have the potential to miss it, that we have the potential to be accepted by God and yet live in such a way that he does not approve, to live in such a way that we waste, we waste our life. So James is gonna make this point really over and over and over again. He's gonna use a few different ways to come at it. First, he's gonna use an illustration of this point, that that faith, that a working faith saves us from a wasted life. Then he's gonna give an imagined objection to his point. He's gonna restate his point. Then he's gonna provide an example, a historical biblical example of this point lived out. And then he's gonna restate his point again. I love it. And I think James is very intentional in this passage that he continues to stress that faith without works is dead, that, that a working faith saves us from a wasted life. He says this over and over and over again because he doesn't want us to miss the forest for the trees. He wants us that even though there's gonna be some nuance and even though there's gonna be some pieces that we talk about, you're like, mm, I don't, is that all that? Even though there's gonna be little pieces here and there that we're like, that's, that's a little tricky. We cannot lose sight of this main big idea. He says it over and over and over again, that our faith should be worked out, that that working faith saves us from a wasted life. And now one of the things that we also have to keep in mind as we prepare to read verse 14 is that context is always crucial. This is true of some of the terms that we're going to talk through today. It's also crucial for just the passage in general. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that the letter of James, as I said at the very beginning, is that it's written to believers. That James is assuming that these people are followers of Jesus Christ, that they have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is an assumption that he makes. And he talks about all constantly, he refers to them as brothers and sisters, these brothers and sisters in Christ. James never presents the gospel in this letter. Why? Because he's writing to people who have heard and accepted the good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, when we pick up in verse 14, we are coming right out of the beginning of chapter two. If you were here last week, you know that James talks about the judgment of believers based on their mercy. He says you shouldn't show favoritism or prejudice in the church. Why? Because God's gonna judge you based on your mercy. So he says in verse 13, he says judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, he just finished talking about this judgment, this examination of mercy in the life of a believer. Right after this, in chapter three, verse one, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. In other words, not only before this does James, before this James talks about the judgment of believers based on their mercy, right after this passage, James is gonna talk about the judgment of believers based on their speech. And so I think it is very reasonable to see 14 through 26 as another judgment of believers, not based on their mercy and not based on their speech, but instead based upon their holistic life's work. That's what we see. That's the context of this letter, of this passage that we're about to read. So if you'll follow with me in chapter two, starting in verse 14, James says this, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? All right, so James uses this, this rhetorical device in the Greek where he poses a question with an assumed negative answer. He says, what good is it if someone claims to have this faith but doesn't put it into work? And then he has this assumed negative answer question. Can it save him? Can this kind of faith save him? Now, Remember, context is crucial, especially when it comes to the term of save or salvation. 
As an example, in the Old Testament, we have the term, in Hebrew, so not in the Greek, but in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the term save or salvation is used about 812 times over the course of the Old Testament. And out of those 812 uses of saved or salvation, 58 of them refer to eternal salvation, eternal life. All the rest are in different uses. They're in different you know, contexts of saving from enemies or saving from despair, or saving from negative consequences. Like it, there are a variety of ways that saved is used. In fact, in the book of James, if we went back to chapter one, verse 21, we would see that James talks about how obedience to the word of God that was implanted within you, it saves you from the negative destructive consequences of giving in to sin. Remember, he says that temptation leads to sin and sin leads to death. He says, and so you should obey the Lord to be saved from those negative consequences of sin in your present life. He's not talking about eternity, but he's talking about your current life. And so here in chapter two, he's again talking about saving, but we have to keep in mind that specific context. It's something we do with language all the time, even in English. One, one of the best examples that I've heard on this is from our senior pastor, Brian Fisher. He's over at our Anderson campus. And he always talks about the distinction between, or the different uses of trunk, Right, he says a trunk takes a lot of different forms depending on your context. He says if you're in a furniture store, you're talking about a trunk, it's a box that you put like clothes and belongings in. If you talk about trunk and you're at a, uh, in a forest, you'd say like, oh, it's a trunk of a tree, right? There's like a trunk that's left there, a tree got cut down, something like that. Or if it's even different, if you're out in a parking lot and you're like, oh, well, hey, there's my trunk. Like it's, you know, where I put things in the back of my car. Trunk takes all these different forms. You can actually tell someone, in other words, you could give a very, this is a real sentence that you could say, I made a trunk out of a trunk. It's out in my trunk, right? Like that's, that's something you could say. And not to mention the fact that if you're at a zoo and then you, there's an elephant and then you got another, like you, you could even build a trunk that looks like a trunk out of a trunk and it's out in my trunk. Like that's a real, that's a real statement that you should use in everyday life. Try to slip it in this week, see how it goes. We have to keep in mind the context of the term that's being used. Saved doesn't always mean eternal salvation. It doesn't always mean eternal life. And so I believe, I think as we read this passage, what we're seeing is that James is not talking about salvation from eternal death. What he's saying is that faith without works cannot save us from a useless life, from a wasted life. And he goes at it with this first illustration. He says, suppose... If a brother or sister, verse 15, is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Right, so his example, I think, is it's great. This illustration is great. It's right to the point. He's saying, your words are useless. You're not helping this person in any way. They come to you naked. They come to you hungry. You're not clothing them. You're not giving them food. He says, that... that that those words that you're using, he says, they don't, they don't fill their stomach. They don't warm their body. What good is it? And so also, ver verse 17, faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. It says your faith is being wasted if it's not lived out in your life. It's dead. And James is gonna repeatedly talk about this idea of the faith being dead. And I think this is also very intentional. He's not saying that the faith is non-existent. He's not saying that the absence of works indicates a complete absence of faith. He says the faith is there, 
but it's worthless, it's dead, it's useless in your daily living life, right? That you're, you're just leaving it like a dead body on the ground. And if we were watching a crime drama and detectives walked up and they found a dead body, right? They don't immediately, when they see the dead body, start to insist that this person never existed, right? No, they, they, this was a person who now, something went wrong and they're dead on the ground. It's not that they never existed, unless this is like a Chris Nolan thriller and then they're like, he never existed, what? You're right, you know, like that's, but that's not what James is getting at. He's saying that when our faith is not lived out in our daily lives, is that faith is being wasted, is there something went wrong? Because God desires to work through us. This is something we have repeatedly told to us in scripture, that God wants to put our faith into practice. Just the other night, this week, I was putting our, our middle child, our six-year-old, to bed. And as I was like, I read him his book, I sang him a song, and as I was preparing to leave, he turned to me and he goes, Dad, he goes, can I have a hug? I was like, yes, of course. I'll never stop hugging you. Like, let's just hold each other forever until we're both dead. I mean, I'll die first, but, you know, like, that's, that's, it was this moment that was so sweet, and I was like, do you want me to just hug you every night? He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, why haven't I been doing that? But he wanted me to put my professed love, right? I always tell him that I love him, but he's like, I, hey, can I get a hug? Like, he wanted to see that professed love put into practice. God desires to see our love. He desires to see our faith put into use. This is how God works. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that God is always wanting to work. He desires to work for his people, in his people, and through his people. God performed a work. He sent Jesus Christ to be our atonement, to pay the penalty for our sins. He died a death on the cross that we might live. That is a work that God has accomplished for us. It's not by our work. We have no reason to boast. But God, by being rich in mercy, has given us this gift of salvation. It is a work for his people. God also says he wants to work in us. He wants to go through this process, not of just salvation, but what we call sanctification, whereby we die more unto sin and we live more unto righteousness, where God transforms us in our hearts and in our minds to be more in the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's work, not just for us, but that is God's work in us. God also desires to work through us. Not just salvation, not just sanctification, but God desires our submission, our willingness to serve based on his will and his commands. God says, I want to put your faith into practice. And this is what James is saying. He says, if we are not living by faith, then we are working against God's plan for our lives. Our faith is being wasted because God wants to use it. God wants to use it to proclaim his glory. God wants to use it to usher in his kingdom. This is what Paul told the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not from works so no one can boast. The work of salvation is something that God has done for us, but Paul goes on and he says that we are his creative work having been created in Christ Jesus, why? For good works that God has prepared beforehand so we can do them, so that we can walk in them. Paul's clear, scripture's clear that God has saved us and he's called us to himself, but then he wants to send us out. He has prepared good works beforehand that for the work of God. That is what we are told. That's what James is calling us to.
to be a people, to be followers of Jesus Christ who live out our faith. And practically what that means for us is we need to be ready and willing to work. We need to present ourselves, as Paul would say, as living sacrifices before the Lord, ready to be poured out just as Christ himself poured out all that he was for us, so too we are called to sacrifice, to pick up our cross and follow him. And this is really, really difficult, I'll tell you, if we are living always maxed out. Okay, this is what I mean by that. Practically speaking, how do we be ready and willing to walk in the work that God has prepared for us? It means that we need to live beneath our means. This is advice that I was given as an early married couple financially, right? Something that we've heard, maybe you've heard growing up. Something that you've said to your own kids, your grandkids, you should live beneath your means. You shouldn't live maxed out of paycheck to paycheck. You should be creating margin in your budget that where you have this ability to flex for unexpected you know, costs or flex for saving or putting ahead for you know, whatever it might be. Financially, that's, that's wise, that's good advice. I would say we should transfer that. I think scripture points us towards living beneath our means, not just financially, but emotionally and with our time and with our energy. That if we are living in such a way that I'm just always completely maxed out, What's gonna happen is I'm gonna be resistant. I will be less likely to feel ready and feel willing to seize the opportunities of ministry that God puts in front of me. If I'm always maxed out, if I have no margin, then when those moments come where I do have the hungry brother show up or I do have the person in need appear, when I do have the opportunity for a spiritual conversation, if I'm just running boom, 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 my schedule is full from now through May, then I'm gonna be way less ready, I'm gonna be way less willing to step into those moments that God has appointed and prepared beforehand that I might walk in them. We should live beneath our means. We should create margin in our schedules, in our energy, in our emotional capacity where we are ready to hand them to the Lord that he would use them as he sees fit. James makes this point that we are called to a living faith with this illustration and then he's gonna provide this imagined objection and this is no joke, the most difficult couple verses to interpret in all of our New Testament. And that's not just me. That's like centuries of biblical scholars before me that talk about how difficult it is to interpret this passage. We're gonna read it, and then we're gonna talk about it. Verse 18. James says, Someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. But would you like evidence, you empty fellow, what f that faith without works is useless? All right, here we go. James, chapter two, verse 18 and 19. As I said, one of the most difficult to interpret passages in all of the New Testament, in large part because we are unsure of where the quotation marks go. You might have noticed in your Bible or on your phone that your quotation marks could have ended at that first sentence. They might have ended after, you have faith and I have works. In other words, that James's imagined objection, his straw man argument, could have ended with that first statement, and then James begins his reply. Others of you, your translation might have the quotation marks end at their, after the second sentence. That's, you know, so the, the objection comes in those first two sentences, and then James's reply begins with, you believe that God is one. Now, as I just read it, I have the quotation marks ending at the 
fourth sentence where James is, or the straw man is saying it all the way to the tremble with fear, and then James's reply begins with verse 20, with, but you would like evidence, or but would you like evidence, empty fellow. All right, here's the reason for that. In Greek, there's no punctuation. There's no punctuation in ancient Greek. You open up a Greek text, you start reading it, there's no punctuation. It's chaos. And it's honestly half the fun in the five semesters of Greek I took, of biblical Greek I took in seminary. Because you're walking through these passages and you're, you, you have no punctuation to go on. You have no capital letters. Uh, everything that you have in terms of putting sentences together comes to prefixes and suffixes on certain words and the ways that certain words are conjugated. It is wild. Like if you didn't really love diagramming sentences in eighth grade, don't go to seminary. Like, that's, that's just a good piece of advice for you. I mean, if the Lord calls you to it, walk in obedience. But, boy, howdy, it's gonna be difficult. There's a reason that really one of the most popular books, and I bought it for seminary students, is they're stepping into ancient texts, uh, both Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew's a whole other thing. But especially in the Greek, literally the first book I bought that every single person recommended, that my professor put on the reading list, was literally, it's a book that's just, how to read, I'm gonna mess up the title, but it's like English for Greek or something like that. It's basically walks you back through all these different like types of speech and functions of speech in English so that you can begin to try to piece it together in the Greek. It is wild. And so that normally doesn't, it doesn't create a huge stir. We can read through a lot of our New Testament and that never really comes, like a lot of it's very clear. We're like, okay, that's the subject. That's the predicate. This is modifying that. Okay. For the most part, it's very, very clear. When it comes to a imagined objection, it's very tricky. So the reason though that I think, so some people are going to end the quotation here, some here, some there. The reason I feel convicted, I, I believe this is a good placement of the quotation marks is a few, multiple fold. The first is that James's response in verse 20 is super clear. Like he is obviously speaking in verse 20. You can make an argument that James is speaking before that, but he's definitely speaking in verse 20. Why? Because he directly addresses in the singular this imagined straw man objector. And he calls him an empty fellow, which you're like, ooh, that's mean. But then you're like, oh, he's imaginary. It's okay, right? And this is exactly what Paul does in Romans 9 and in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul uses this exact same rhetorical device. It was common in ancient Greek that you would create this straw man argument. I mean, we still do it to this day. It's a, it's a logical thing that you do when you're making an argument. That's part of it. That's part of why I think it makes sense for the quotation that late. It also, I think, makes sense because when you read the entire 18 and 19 as an objection to James's statement, I think it makes sense. I think it all fits within one single argument. This is what I mean by that. The objector says, James, all right, so James just said, faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works, it's useless. Objector says, James, you have faith and I have works. In other words, he's saying, no, James, you can totally just separate those things out. No big deal. You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith, or I'll show you faith by my works. So it's, it's great. Like, you can have faith with works, you can have faith without works. Easy, easy peasy. Even Stevens. It's all good. And then the imagined straw man uses an example. He says, you believe that God is one. He's referencing the Shema, the statement from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verse 4, that every Israelite always repeated, every single day, every Jew repeated this, that our God, or our Lord is God, 
that our Lord is one. It's an admission of saying that he is God, I am not. So this imagined objector is saying that, hey, you believe that God is one. You repeat the Shema, well and good. Translated here, it's well and good. Literally in the Greek, it's literally, you do well. So you could interpret that as an affirmation of like, well, that's a good thing to believe. Or I think more literally you interpret it as you do well. In other words, your belief has work. And then he goes on. He gives this little illustration. He says, even the demons believe, but they tremble with fear. In other words, you believe you have work. The demons believe they don't have work. It's an extreme, kind of silly example. And it's, oh man, at least a lot of just confusion and conversation. But I think taken as a whole, that feels like a reasonable objection or a reasonable imagined objection to James' statement. James is saying faith and work should not be separated. The objector says, you can separate them, no biggie. And James, he's not refuting that they could be separated, but he's bringing his objector and us, the audience, back to his original point by restating He's saying, okay, maybe you can separate your faith from your work. He says, but you're missing the point that faith without works is useless. It's useless. It's worthless. It's not being used. You're wasting your life. He's restating this idea that a working faith saves us from a wasted life. Now, I went through that in like three minutes based on our timer. I, I recognize you might still have questions about that. I would love to talk about it. You might still have questions or concerns. That's great. It's a great thing to study. Join the club of centuries, centuries of biblical scholars who have wrestled with this and studied this. But as we wrestle and as we study, let's not miss this big idea that James repeats over and over again in this passage. That a working faith, it saves us from a wasted life. Let's not miss that forest for this little example tree. All right? And this is exactly what Paul says to the church in Corinth. They had a lot of problems. And one of their problems was that their faith was not being put into practice. In 1 Corinthians 3, he said, brothers and sisters, again, speaking to believers, he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul says, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are, in fact, spiritual people. He says, but I can't talk to you like that. Why? Because you're behaving like people of the flesh, like you're still infants. It says, I fed you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready. In fact, you're still not ready, for you're still influenced by the flesh. He's speaking to believers, followers of Jesus Christ. He says, you are running into this, you are accepting this influence from your broken flesh, your old nature. He says, there's still jealousy, there's still dissension among you. Are you not influenced by the flesh and behaving like unregenerate people? In other words, Paul is acknowledging for that church, those believers in Corinth, he says, your faith, he's not saying your faith doesn't exist. He's not saying the problem is that none of you really believe in Jesus. He says the problem is that your faith has become detached from your work and you're behaving like unregenerate people. He says, and that's a problem because you are regenerated. That's why there's a problem. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, there's gonna be people outside the church who are unregenerate, that have not been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and they're gonna live like it. He says, you don't worry about that. You don't worry. 
You pray for them, you share the gospel with them, but you don't focus on their behavior. Why? Because they're behaving according to their nature. Here, he's saying, for you, it should line up, but it's not. That's why there's a problem, because your nature has been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, by your faith in his accomplishments on your behalf, and yet you're living in such a way that does not reflect that faith. Paul's making the exact same statement, the exact same point that James is making in chapter two, that it is possible for our faith to become detached from our work, but when that happens, we're missing the point. We are not living according to our purpose. Our faith is worthless. That's the point he's making. And James hammers it one more time with an example here at the end of the passage, starting in verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And so you see that his faith was working together with his works and his faith was perfected by works. James uses not an imaginary example, not a hypothetical situation. He uses a real historical biblical figure, the biggest one of all, Abraham. And he says, Abraham was justified by his works. We need to pause and remind ourselves of what is justified. In scripture, when we read, we see the term justified a lot, especially in the New Testament. And as we read this term justified, we need to recognize that justification is, by definition, it is a declaration of righteousness, of right standing. It's a declaration. It's not a transformation. It's not that I am taking something and I'm making it right and thereby justifying it. Justification, justifying is simply declaring that it is so, that this thing is right. This is really important because when we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, we still sin, right? Even though we're a new creation in Christ, we still make mistakes. We still fail. We still need letters like James to point us back on the right track. Why? Because we haven't been fully transformed into righteousness. We're not perfectly right intrinsically in who we are. But our faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us this over and over and over again, our faith in Christ justifies us in that we are declared righteous so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect work and accomplishment of Jesus Christ that covers over our sin and our failure that persists even after saving faith. So when James talks about the justifying of Abraham here, we have to remember that justification is a declaration of righteousness. And so James is saying Abraham was declared righteous by his work when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, to understand this, we have to kind of think through the life of Abraham. James does it. He gives us a kickstart on that in the very next verse. He says, Scripture was fulfilled that says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. James is very intentional. He's talking about the fulfillment of Abraham's righteousness. He talks about the perfection of his faith. And James is essentially helping us see this trajectory of Abraham's life. He's quoting here from Genesis 15. You see, in Genesis 12, God gives Abraham a promise. He says, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you this, these descendants. And I'm going to bless the world through you. That's the promise that God gave to him in Genesis 12. Genesis 15, a short time later, we're told that Abraham, that's what James is quoting. Abraham believed God. He believed the promise. 
And that was credited to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham received his eternal salvation by his faith in the promises of God. But then James, right before this, he talks about Abraham being justified by works, offering his son Isaac. That's about 20 years later. That's Genesis 22. When God went to Abraham and he says, I want you to rise up early in the morning. I want you to bring me your son and offer him as a sacrifice. Why? Because God was allowing Abraham to face a trial. It was a test to make sure, to, to ensure that it was an opportunity for Abraham to display, to demonstrate his faith in the Lord by showing that he trusted God's plan above his own. That even when things didn't make sense to Abraham, he says, I'm gonna trust that God is still good. I'm gonna trust that God has a plan. We're told later in scripture that Abraham believed, he must have believed that God would simply raise Isaac from the dead if Isaac died. Because Abraham was confident in the promise of God. And so that moment in Genesis 22, what, what James is pointing at is that that obedience to the Lord, that work in Abraham's life, declared his righteousness to the point where he was now called God's friend. That's an acknowledgement, not just from the Lord, but from the people of God. This is referred to in Isaiah. It's referred to elsewhere in scripture where people look at Abraham and say, yes, he's the friend of God. Why? Because it's a signal of his intimacy with the Lord. It's the same thing that Jesus, Jesus promises to his followers who obey him in John 15, where he says that those who obey me will be called my friends. It's not that that obedience secures our acceptance from the Lord, but that obedience declares our standing with him. It declares our right standing, our righteousness, our relationship with him to all of the world. So here, James is saying that it was more than just Abraham's profession of faith. That's good. He's not discounting that. That's, that's a good thing. But he says, but it was when Abraham lived it out that all the world could look at him and declare that he, in fact, is righteous, that he, in fact, was a friend of God. So of course, then James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not talking about earning the acceptance of God. He's talking about working for the approval of God and the acknowledgement of your fellow man. We are declared righteous through the way that we live if it aligns with our faith, where it's more than just words. And he closes with another example. He kind of goes to the opposite end of the spectrum. As one scholar put it, he moves from the revered patriarch to the redeemed prostitute. James says that similarly was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho when Joshua and God's armies invaded the land. They were taking the promised land for God's people. We're told that Rahab, uh, a woman of questionable pursuits, uh, she took in Israelite spies. And when she did that, she protected them. And she told them, she says, I know that your God is real. And I know that your God's actually gonna win this battle. And so I'm going to serve, I'm gonna protect you as a way of displaying my faith in him. And because of that, she was physically saved. Her life was spared because of her work. It's not that that work was necessary to secure her acceptance by the Lord. She, we're told that she had faith in Yahweh, in the one true living God. But she demonstrated that faith by protecting the messengers. And in doing so, her physical life was spared. And so James closes one more time. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
Do not miss this one big idea that a working faith saves us from a wasted life. So as we close this morning by singing one more song, by singing actually a, a beautiful old hymn that's focused upon how our lips and our lives should reflect our adherence to the truth of God, my hope is that we would recognize that God cares deeply about our lives. He cares about our day-to-day interactions. He cares about our thoughts. He cares about our feelings. He cares about our work. He does. And that's a good thing. That's a comfort to know that God is examining and cares deeply about our day-to-day lives. That he's not just at a distance like, yeah, whatever, get back to me later. Like, God cares. He's intimately involved. He sent his spirit to indwell us, to walk with us, to guide us and comfort us as we live our daily lives. And so when God calls us to obedience, it's not something that should create fear. It would be one thing if James in chapter two told the audience, he says, and the problem with all of you is that you never really believed. He never says that. It'd be one thing if James says, you know what? Uh, You all have a false assurance of, of your salvation. He never says that. James never even presents, as I said earlier, James never even presents a path to salvation. He never even presents the gospel in the whole letter. How cruel would it be if James was trying to tell his audience that they had never actually had saving faith in Christ and then he never actually presents the opportunity or the means by which that salvation is obtained? James isn't doing that. He's calling believers to obedience. He's not calling unbelievers to salvation. And so for us, it's a call that we must answer. It's a conviction that we must hold, that God cares about our lives, that he doesn't want us to live in fear, but he does want us to live in awe and reverence of who he is, of the life that he's called us to live. So as we close with one more song, my hope is that we would approach this time honestly before the Lord, asking him to reveal to us where can our faith be lived out more fully, trusting that even when we fail, even when we slip, even when we make mistakes, even when we show favoritism, even when we don't speak well, even when we don't control our tongues, even when our faith doesn't match with our works, we trust, we know that God's grace is greater, that his mercy is deeper, that God is ready to pick us up and call us forward again. That's the Lord that we serve. That's the God who has saved us. So it's not out of fear that we approach obedience. It's out of gratitude for his promise of assurance. The assurance that does not come through personal examination. The assurance that comes from looking up to see the promises that he's made. The work that he's accomplished on my behalf. So as we prepare to sing, let's pray and ask the Lord to point us in that direction. God, we are so thankful once again that you've given us your word as a source of hope of admonishment, of encouragement, and exhortation. God, we are challenged by your commands. God, we are struck by your calls to obedience. And Lord, we recognize that the reward is great. God, that, that, that the eternal blessing is real 
for the lives that are lived according to your purposes. So God, that's what we wanna aim for. God, that's what we wanna move towards. God, we recognize that your goal for us is not our comfort or our happiness, that God, your goal for our lives is spiritual maturity. So God, let us use our faith in that direction. God, let us follow you as you call us towards maturity and as you save us from a wasted life. If you would, take this moment now and just take some time to ask the Lord for conviction and direction. Conviction that God show me where is it that my faith and work is not aligned. God revealed to me, because we all have it in some area of life. But then beyond that, ask the Lord, say, God, show me, give me direction in how to walk more faithfully with you. God, how to live out my faith and how to depend upon, not my strength, but the strength and the power of your spirit who indwells me, who moves me towards maturity, who moves me towards a life that is reflective of your glory, that is used for others' good. Ask him for that now.